When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Good morning. Uh, today's uh, Wednesday. Um, yesterday was International Women's Day. Um, I did a couple of gigs for this, and it was, a, and I think it's an important day. Um, I said something at the National Australia Bank uh, summit that they held down at uh, the casino. There was uh, about 500 people in the room, I guess, and uh, some old friends there, including, including Angie Mentis and Geraldine Duke and many others. And I was the only guy on a, on a panel of women which is an interesting uh, conversation. But one of the things I just wanted to raise is that is this, that in terms of uh, changing the momentum around uh, women and women achieving what they call parity today, or let's call it equivalence is probably a better word, um, the whole concept of uh, form versus substance needs to be addressed. And that is, um, I think uh, we as a society, women as a segment of society, continually think about themselves and their form and as opposed to their substance. And when they think about themselves and their form, that actually holds them back. When it comes to business, women in business, when it comes to men in business, the only thing that matters is your substance, what your skill base is, what you can do, and how you see yourself. It's got nothing to do with your form, how you look. Now, the two can interact, the two can coexist. I mean, form, we can continue to look at ourselves and be proud of ourselves, or we're trying to improve our position, or you know, in a form sense, in a physical sense, that's great. That can coexist. But when it comes to you doing your business, only think, only remember, remember there's only one thing that matters and that is what you've got and what you believe what you've got and how you think. And if you think that way, then there will be no barriers. And we have to get kids, young girls to think about this from the day they're born and parents, this is a parent's obligation. This is not society's obligation. This is the at a micro level, that's what parents need to do and we need to not just have International Women's Day brought about by the United Nations, I mean, from a top-down environment. We need governments, governments to get on top of this and actually to start to sponsor families to have their daughters think about themselves differently and have families think about their sons to think about their daughters differently and their sisters differently. So it's a mindset, it's a consciousness, and I think um, that's something that governments could do in this country. We'd be a world first to do that if we could sort of get our heads around it. Okay. Wow, well, I've got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people here today, eight guests, um, um, all of whom are <coughs> friends of the show. Would you like a glass of water? I oh, know, I've got one just here. Okay, cool. Um, f- uh, friends of the show, um, everybody's here has got something they want to put up and uh, or something they want to talk about, and uh, I'm probably going to do a lot less talking and a lot more listening. I might just prod at you every now and then um, just to see what you've got. 
And uh, I don't really know where to start, but probably start ladies first. <laughs> Lady first. Well, so, so tell me your name. My name's Anne Holland. My oh. business is DFib First. Where are you from? From Melbourne. From Melbourne. So you flew up today, yesterday? Yes, I did. Okay, very good. Tell me about what you're doing here. Like, what's the Well, deal? I'm a registered nurse and a first aid trainer and in 2008 my husband didn't survive a cardiac arrest. So I educate ordinary people to provide the life-saving skill of applying an automated external defibrillator, an AED. I've got one here. And can you just ex- explain to those who are listening, what is an AED? Uh, an an AED is a, yeah, an automated external defibrillator. When that's applied within the first few minutes of a cardiac arrest, it can lift that person's likelihood of survival from less than 5% to over 80%. And this is the thing that Kerry Packer famously equipped the AMBOs with? In or New South Wales, yeah, that's yeah. correct, in, two, in 1991. So is... Is the AED machine you have in front of you, is that something you've designed or something you're promoting? Oh, no, no. These are medical devices that are approved by the TGA in Australia. Uh, So, no, these are devices that I supply, but it's the education (coughs) side of it that I'm focused on. The education side? Yeah, it's no point having these on the wall if no one knows what it means or what to do with it or when to use it or how quickly to use it. It's funny, you know, I go into gyms in Europe, especially, or like if I'm in a hotel in Europe and they have a gym there, they've all got one. Yet I go around gyms around Sydney. I've never seen one anywhere unless it got under the counter. It's not a requirement. They don't have it because it's not a requirement. Is it an expensive item? They're about $2,500. Reasonably expensive. Well... Uh, amortise that over 10 years or so, it's it's not really it's um, all that expensive if it saves a life. No, I agree with that. Um, yeah. I, I, and do insurance companies make, um, in terms of insurance, let's say you're insuring a gym, do they make you, you probably don't know the answers, but maybe you do, uh, but it's, it's a curious one for me, do they um, ask gyms, for example, to make sure they have one of these, in other words, uh, and reduce the premium on the insurance policy? No, and that's one of the objectives that we have with the National Awareness Campaign. The first aid training regulations in this country now require participants to be assessed as competent in using an AED, but it's not required by law that they be provided. So employers, for example, are now training their staff to use a life-saving device for which they're not required to actually provide the device that allows them to perform the life-saving skill. Sounds like the house of Jack built. Um, yeah. So just explain that to me again. So, like, I'm an employer, I'm in my office environment, we've got three, four hundred people in the building down there in um, um, Chifley. Um, I have one of these? Should I have one of these? You should, and you would be required to have trained staff in your organisation because of the numbers that you employ, but you're not required by law to have an AED. But all of your staff have been trained by Australian Government regulations to use it. They have been? Yes, they have. Since the 1st of July 2014, it's part of the unit of Somebody there, not all of my staff. No, those are the first aid trainers. Right, the first aid trainers, Mm. right. But my objective is that everybody will be educated. You don't have to have first aid training to use an AED. Anyone can use them. They're automatic. When they're put on, they're looking for a heart rhythm. They can't shock the wrong person. They can't hurt anybody. When it finds the heart rhythm that is a lethal heart rhythm, it will automatically deliver a shock. So I've written the book on this actually. What's busting. the name of the book? The book is called Back in a Heartbeat. Yep. And it's about busting the myths and fears associated with defibrillators. I guess admin hospitals do that. Oh, yes, obviously, because, you know, there's people trained there to use them. But uh, 75% of cardiac arrests in this country, and there's 33,000 of them, occur outside of a hospital. So let's say um, right now... Uh you know, I have a heart attack. Is it a heart attack we're talking about? A cardiac arrest a is cardiac not arrest. a heart attack, but a heart attack can cause a cardiac arrest. Okay. So what am I looking for, a heart attack or a cardiac arrest here? You don't have to worry about whether it's a heart attack. You're only looking to see whether that person is breathing. So what would you be looking for from me? Let's, some, I got right. really tired all of a sudden I started crumbling if down on that. If you crumbled the... and you were not breathing and you were unconscious and unresponsive, you were in cardiac arrest, putting a defibrillator on will do no harm. Right. Now, but you're a nurse though, Anne, yes. right? What about the bloke here with the short, short sleeves and the tats? And uh, the sun is hanging off him. What would he do with the... 
Would you like me to open it up and listen to it? Listen it's to my not, heart? No, no, to the machine. Yeah, what yeah, 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 listen up. Open up. Okay, here we go. This is automatic. It's just... Stay Oops. calm. Follow these instructions. Make sure triple zero is called now. Oh, shit. <laughs> Begin by exposing the patient's bare chest. Remove or cut clothing if needed. So it will take you through. Right, that's pretty When the patient's chest is bare, remove the white square package from the lid of the AED. Tear open the white package across the dotted line and remove the pads. Peel one of the white pads completely from the blue plastic. Begin pulling from the tab corner. I'm going to close it up now yeah, because yeah, yeah. it will repeat that because it knows I haven't done it. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. So they're So that, that gets put on my chest. Yes. And then you, is this like in the movies where they put the two things on someone's chest or is this just... Uh, no, these are adhesive pads. They stay on the on the victim. Yeah. They won't do um, anything until they've detected a heart rhythm. If it det- detects a normal heart rhythm, it will say no shock advised. But you're looking for a lethal heart rhythm and the most important point about the campaign is that the first two to three minutes of accessibility is critical for survival. Yeah, but what does it do, though? It delivers a shock through oh, the heart sh- muscle. Give, so it yeah. looks for this rhythm. Yeah. So, in essence, a cardiac arrest is when the electrical system that stimulates the heart to contract goes haywire. Right. It could be caused by a heart attack, but there's lots of causes. Mm. So what this looks for is that haywire lethal rhythm. If it finds that, it delivers a shock to the heart, which stops all the abnormal activity for just a moment, and then the normal heart rhythm slips It's a bit like turning my mobile phone off it's and like, re- rebooting it. Exactly. It's a reboot. A reboot. Okay. Mm. Excellent. So this is um, – are you doing this to make money or are you doing this because it's a, a social uh, thing you want to do and you want to – Well, uh, the – Business side of it is uh, the only way I can do it is actually to um, have an income, but I've also set up a not-for-profit called Urban Lifesavers. Right. So we have a board established for that and we're running a Guinness World Record in Melbourne on the 2nd of October. Hopefully not looking for people having uh, heart conditions or heart No, or... Mark, no. no, we're not. It will be a simulated event and yeah. that's going to be the um, largest defibrillation training session that we want to establish a new record in Australia. Where do you buy these things from? You can buy them all over the place. You don't need a prescription. Uh, in the United States, up until recently, you have needed a prescription. So anyone can have one and they should be everywhere and they should be as commonplace as fire extinguishers. And they should be tax deductible too. Well, they are. They are tax deductible. Yes. Okay, okay. cool. That's very cool. Mm. And the book's called Back in a Back Heartbeat. Back in a Heartbeat. Mm. And what other things you got to throw out there whilst we're here? Oh, well, I just brought an, a chart that is not good on radio, but what well, the chart... Well, we're getting filmed here. <laughs> what the chart shows you is that there are 33,000 cardiac arrests each year in this yeah. country. Yeah. If you compare that with fire and smoke-related fatalities, in 2013 there were 56. So we have got 590 times more likely, it is 590 times more likely you'll have to deal with a cardiac arrest, but fire extinguishers, smoke alarms and testing and tagging fire equipment are compulsory. There's no public awareness campaigns, there's no funding, there's no regulations, there's no legislation for AEDs. Well, Anne Holland, thank you very much. That's great to bring that to our attention. And uh, I learned something and uh, (coughs) I'm actually seriously thinking about getting one of these things. Um, I probably should put it in the, the gym at the farm. I can help you with that. Yeah, and I probably should get one if we don't really have them in, in the various floors of our offices in the city. And uh, maybe Jakey needs one every now and then. Mm. Is that something you could deal with, Jakey? Yeah, sure. I think they should. No, <laughs> when we're doing the show, I'm doing that. <coughs> oh, yeah. I might just put one on your chest and just monitor you the whole time. Oh, I'd be too worried you press the button that it shocks me. <laughs> well, there we go. I've got to bust that myth too. You can't do that. You can't shock. <laughs> no. that's, that's right. Okay, thanks very much, Anne. I appreciate Thank that. You. Okay, who wants me next? Put your hand up. Okay, 
Man, I got this guy here. I'm just going to describe him for those who can't see him. Uh, he's looks like to me. He looks like uh, uh, a pommy with uh, one of those sort of hats on from uh, the East End of London or Cockney sort of guy. He's not Cockney. Yeah, he's an Aussie, yeah. but that's his the look. That's the look about him. And uh, he's got a big smile on him. Yeah. And uh, something. He's a very happy guy. So, name. Uh, my name's Tony Fitzgerald. Tony Fitzgerald. That sounds uh, Irish, actually. Yeah, but, uh, from County Clare and Limerick. County Clare and Limerick. Okay. okay. Um, uh, we know they, uh, you know, Lim- well, I won't say, well, but Limerick's known as Stab City, you know. Um, it's these days, it's sort of pretty violent yeah. sort of joint, um, pretty yeah. tough place, Limerick. Um, anyway, but I won't go into that. Um, Tony, tell me where, where you're from in Australia. Um, I currently live in Orange, yeah. um, where I was born. My family's been in Orange for seven generations, so. God's country. Yeah, that's it. We came out and helped, you know, the formation of Orange. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow, that's, that's cool. Uh, Orange is one of those places that's actually up and running. It's doing quite well. Yeah, food and wine especially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they've got a couple of hospitals down there too. And, uh, yeah, just built a big multi-million dollar yeah. hospital. And, yeah. and Orange is uh, Orange real estate's pretty good. And uh, I actually got a friend or one of the guys on one of the boards I'm on and uh, he recently bought a small 25-acre lot just outside of Orange and yeah. uh, he, he loves the place. It's only three and a half hours drive from Sydney. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. And you can actually fly there on Hazelton or yeah, uh, somebody correct. like that. Uh, well, Hazelton was the original airline, but it's now Rex Airlines. Rex, oh, that's right. And yeah. I, actually, I flew out to Orange on Hazelton like a million years ago and I bought um, a car, an Alfa Romeo Spider convertible yeah. um, from a doctor out there and it was in shit condition. I, I flew out there, <laughs> bought it and drove it back to Sydney and refurbished it. Um, these are in my. I was about twenty six in those days. A white Alfa Romeo Spider convertible. I'll never forget. And I was um, enthralled by the beauty of orange. Anyway, enough of that. What do you got for us? Well, I um, spring something back to life, which is uh, a part of history. So I'm bringing back to life an iconic, long lost beer brand, which is the Walkers Brewing Company. And I discovered a black and white photo to three years down the track. I found the old recipes, labels, and journals tucked away in a box. That have been sitting there for 90 years. And how it happened was a hairy arm moment, let me tell you. Okay, so this is, we're talking about Walkers. uh, I don't remember Walkers. I mean, I I remember some of the older ones like Rashers and all those sort of things, which don't exist. Well, they do exist. Rashers still a beer we drink around here, which is the old Sydney uh, logo for Rashers beer, the beer we drink around here. Yeah. Um, Take me back to Walkers now. I mean, obviously, I'm not 90, so I don't remember, but. Well, they were the largest country brewer standing, and then they closed down 1926. Why did they close? Uh, They got bought out by Tui's. That's what happens. That's so that, what happened. Yeah, exactly. That's what Resh has got bought out too and uh, Toots got bought out as well. Yeah, that's And correct. then they just closed them down. Yeah. Kill the competition. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, uh, I mean, there's great history in this country about old beer brands like Toots, KB, Toots got, uh, KB Gold uh, with a gold can. I don't remember. It was one yeah, of the yeah. first to bring out the aluminium gold cans, which I don't like drinking beer out of can anymore, but I used to in those days because it was sort of unusual. And so beer history is quite important to Australians. I don't know about anyone else in the world. So, um Tell me about why you want to bring this. You're bringing it back and what's the deal? Well, the thing is, is um, how I discovered it, I, I bought the Brisbane Broncos and Canberra Raiders Orange for a trial match some years ago and I bought the Waratahs and Fiji uh, rubber union game to Orange. And when I was doing some research in the Orange Library, I found an old black and white photo of a brewery on the corner of Mulder and Hill Street. Now, my family's been there for seven generations and nobody mentioned about this big brewery. So from there... So it's an orange-based brewery? Uh, yeah, it was an orange... Yeah, right. it was operated between 1895 to 1926 and it closed down in 1926. But he started off in Bathurst and James Walker was a very influential man, a politician. He was a mason, um, a labour. Um, 
and uh, a mayor of Bathurst at one period of time, and then he bought the brewery in Orange and then two in Sydney, and he was the largest country brewer in 1926 and then two he's walked in and bought him out. Uh, so he was a start-up in 1895. Yeah, in 1895, yeah, he started up. The brewery actually still stands in Bathurst. It's a four-storey building, and I'm trying to acquire that to turn it into the Australian Breweries Museum as well and bring the whole life of the breweries back to life, which is nowhere in Australia nobody's doing it. Um, so, yeah, the building's there, quite fascinating. So you found the recipes? Yeah. And so the recipes, uh, obviously the patents would have all expired over the recipes yep. if they actually indeed ever registered any, but... So have you actually brewed anything out of the recipes yet? Yeah, we, we've, well, we can't actually brew the recipes back in those days. We can get close to it because some of the ingredients, you know, can't be used. We know where the hops, we did a lot of research on trade and we know where the hops came from. It came from Tasmania and in Victoria. So we can source those uh, ingredients and then some of the others we just have to make it up. So we're trying to keep it authentic as we possibly can. A lot of it was influenced by English beers, uh, but then also James sent his son Douglas off to America for three years to study the brewing uh, barons in America and it's actually recorded in the journals that I've got all the notes and all the labels that he gathered over there and he came back and basically replicated and modelled what he learned over in America for three years. That's so cool. that was quite fascinating. So you, obviously you're fascinated with history. Are you a little bit uh, esoteric and out there uh, as a bloke or what drives you? Well, what drives me is, look, I'm an innovator. And that's my my instinctive talent, and I back it up with entrepreneurial skills. And when I discovered the black and white photo, straight away I knew that craft beer was on the rise. Yep. And it was just a matter of connecting the dots. But you know, people say to me, why this? And, I, and it comes back to this, and it's a hairy arm moment, I call it. Like, I was trying to do research on the brewery, and I put a story in the insert section of the Daily Telegraph looking for descendants or people. And I got a couple of emails through, and three months after the story appeared in the Daily Telegraph... Nothing really happened in between those three months. And then I went to the uh, Southhead Cemetery of Vaucluse where James Walker's buried. Um, Is he related to Johnny Walker? No, I don't. Well, <laughs> nothing I can discover, but hey. he's, he's Johnny did he, better than James. Yeah. <laughs> he makes good whiskey yeah. or scotch. And uh, I went to the cemetery and I videoed everything and, 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 and photographed everything. And when I was at the cemetery, I had the, the flip camera and I put my hand on the tombstone. I looked up in the sky and I said, James, wherever you're up there, give us your blessing. We're going to bring your beer back to life. Crack a carton of beer open at your grave and celebrate the launch of the Pale Ale. And you wouldn't believe it. That night I went home. The next morning I turned on the computer and in my inbox came an email from the great-granddaughter saying, contact us. We'll tell you everything about our great-grandfather. And I rang Sally up, went to Birchgrove, sat down, and she said, I come to think of it, my other sister Shirley up in Billiards happens to have the old brewery journals and recipes and labels in a box that had been sitting there for 90 years. And I said, you're joking. And when she said that, I rang up Shirley. She said, I'll go down and have a look in the garage. And she came out and she said, yes, um, we have those in the garage. So Jimmy, now, Jimmy's Jimmy's is still alive somewhere. Well, you know, he was looking on. down at me that day, saying, "Look, craft beer is on the rise." He said, no, "That's funny that you should say that." Yeah, and because uh, craft beer is on the rise, and I was I was involved um, maybe eight nine years ago in a craft beer company, and uh, you just couldn't get a go. And uh, we had about five or six labels, and it was a too tough a business. And but I was only observing the other day how craft beers are massive, in particular in places like Byron Bay, like uh, or, or um, Bangalore, for example. There's all these new brands and being backed by people, and in some pubs they're the best sellers. Yeah, by far, especially when they're on tap. Mm. Like that Stone and uh, 
Stone and Wood. Stone and Wood, yeah, which is I think is owned by um, one of the old great rugby league players. Uh, used to he played on the wing for Manly. Played for Canterbury. Uh, Tommy. Uh, no, not Tommy Rodriguez. No, <laughs> no, Tommy. Tommy drink it. Uh, no, but I don't think drink Tommy Rodriguez drinks anymore. <laughs> but uh, Tommy Mooney. Yeah. Um, and and Tommy owns the Bangalore Hotel. He has about five pubs up there. But I understand that um, he's doing brilliantly in brewing this stone and wood. And it's not a bad beer, actually. I had a bit of yeah, had, a few, beer, had a few had a few middies of it. It's a good beer. And um, and, and so what you're saying because the big issue in terms of a craft beer then was actually being able to get square metres of floor space in the Woolworths and Coles outlets because Woolworths and Coles own all the liquor stores, all of them, you know, Dan Murphy's everywhere. And in order to sell your stuff, you've got to get up the front of the shop. Otherwise, people walk down the back of the shop and they're not going to even see it. Yeah. And you've got to get it at a price point because they won't put it up the front unless it's at a certain price point. So the cost of brewing is quite expensive unless you're brewing a million bottles of stuff. Yeah. And you need to have scale. Yeah, you do. And uh, scale was the thing that killed us because we couldn't get the scale. And the reason we couldn't get the scale is because we couldn't sell enough. The reason we couldn't get it sell enough because we couldn't get the right price. Mm. And because we didn't have the right price, we didn't get it at the front of the shop. Yeah. It's sort of a, it's a, sort of a sequence. But um, how is craft beer now become successful is because is it because punters say, listen, I'm sick of drinking VB, I'm sick of drinking, I actually want to try something new. Is that, is that what's going on? Or? Yeah, it was pretty much, Mark, like, you know, what happened back when wine, you know, was starting to get traction and a lot of people didn't know the difference between a Merlot and a Sauv Blanc or whatever. But what's happening now in the craft beer movement, everybody's now seeing, um, and the craft beer is being very visible, they're seeing all these different flavours and different alternatives. So, they're saying, well, hey, let's try it. So there's an education process that's happening now to educate those people that are not aware of the ingredients and the different things that you can put into beer these days, and that's what they're trying, and they're getting excited about it because it's creating experience and it's creating a sensation, and that's so, what's happening. Well, what's interesting about what you're talking about then is how do you make your craft beer stand out from other craft, beer, craft beers? And I guess what you're going to tell me, which I think is a good idea, is that there's history associated with this one. And it's Australian. Yeah. It comes from orange. It's not someone someone's sat in the back of their, um, you know, their their shed and dreamt up. Mm. This is this has got history. Yeah. What what we're doing is we're doing something different um, to the other guys. There's 400 craft brewers out there at the moment. They've got really cun- uh, really funky cool names. But the thing is, is what we're doing is like we're bringing back to life, you know, the history of it, and we're doing something really different that nobody else is What's doing. What's your beer, is it, by the way? Oh, we got a mixture. This is the Pale Ale. This was the label on the Pale Ale. This was their award-winning beer back in 1895 through to 1926. Pale Ale meaning what? Pale Ale means it's a type of flavour of a beer and it's the most popular beer at the moment. It's the one that most people are buying. White beers. It's a, like a white beer. It's a, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of hops in it yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. got a real good, nice taste to it. And we're, we're launching with this one first and then we'll roll out the others later. Okay, and where do you brew it? Uh, we're going to brew in – we've got a different model to everybody. We're going to contract brew, but our main business model is to set up brew houses and restaurants. Yeah, but contract brewing where, though? Uh, in Sydney, through okay. Icon Brewing. Because we used to brew ours in China, Yeah, interesting enough, because we could get really cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they brew good beer in China, believe it or not. Um, yeah. They do a very good job. Uh, so you're going to brew it here? It's going to be expensive then, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, through Icon Brewing. Well, not as expensive um, as we thought, but we're going to contract brew. We're just doing something different. Instead of opening up a microbrewery with a, a restaurant – we're going to open up a restaurant brew house chain and build seven in the first five years and then have our signature beers flow through each brew house and bistro restaurant that we open. So that way we maintain a lot of profitability, which makes the business healthy because we want to be in it for the long term. And who's we? Who are uh, you? It's myself and two other partners and I've got... 
probably about seven investors interested in the moment. Brilliant. Including well, you. Is that right? <laughs> Am I an investor already? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're going to be. And these, <laughs> and, and these beers are for you. Oh, thank you, bro. Actually, I love a beer. I love a beer. A I can't drink at the moment because I'm trying to recover my arm, but I love beer. It's, it's, uh, it's my downfall. I, I mean, I, when I was, when Nick was a kid, like a little kid, he's still a kid, he's 26. But when he was a real little kid, like a, a little boy, and his brother's arm, I used to drink. I used to be able to drink in a day whilst I was mowing the lawn and working in the backyard, which I used to do every Saturday for about five hours because yeah. we had this huge property, a bit of real estate. I'd drink a whole bottle of VB Twist Tops, a whole uh, box of VB Twist Tops, the yeah. old 24. <laughs> um, I don't do that now, but uh, if I did that, well, I would have been about uh, 30, 30, mid-30s in those days, and uh, I wouldn't, you know, it's just, I just, I'm just at home, you know, driving involved, but I, I was, the only thing I was driving around was a mower, and probably that was probably, probably a bit dangerous too, but, you know, getting in the garden, and because it was hot and you're sweating, you're young, by the end of the day, you get, and I used to go to bed at 8 o'clock in those yeah. days. I get the kids in bed at 6.30. So I love my beer. Yeah. I don't drink it very much these days, but uh, when I was younger, I used to give it a, give it a good nudge. Um, I'm looking forward to tasting this. So good luck to you. Is there anything you want to say? No, Closing? really. That's, that's about it, really. It's just, you know, I'm really passionate about what I'm doing and really excited about it. And it's a, it's a great, historic, you know, true, authentic, factual story of a, of a, a brewer that was once, you know, just as big as Reese's and Tui's. Tui's and... Um, Quickly, when he sold his business, he built a great big mansion at the uh, at the point of uh, Vaucluse Point there, and he did that to piss off Reese's and Tui's and to say, who were, hey, the, big, who were the big families yeah, who owned all the yeah. big houses. And, and they're very connected, yeah. but it was his way of saying, you know, hey, guys, I'm the biggest brewer in, uh, in New South Wales. Is the house still in existence? No, it's uh, been knocked down, and the two houses that have been built on there now, collectively, that's about $70 million worth. Beautiful views of harbour. And when he built that house... That whole land was just barren land. I've got the original photos of the house. I wouldn't mind you send me an email. That'd be interesting to know where that property is. Send me an email with a photo. Yeah, Yeah. I'd love to see that. Good luck to you. Thank you. Perfect. Now, I've got to talk to the bloke with the tats. (laughs) Come on. Come on, dude. Tell me. All right. I'm a graphic designer. Yeah. Um, Give me a name. Brett Page. Brett Brett Page. Gold Coast Coast boy. Yeah. Yeah. Born Um, and bred. So basically what I did Born and bred, year, Gold Coast, Brett? No, Sydney, originally, Campbelltown, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. and then Central Coast, then okay, cool. Gold Coast. Um, basically, I come up with a new invention. Everything was evolving, you know, cars, computers, you know, a- anything in between. But when I found that we were still gifting wine the same way with the, you know, oversized gift bags that sort of hides the bottle of wine, well, I came up with a new concept to make it more personal because I find wine... Is, can be an impersonal gift, but it's the sort of go-to gift that, you know, you want to give. And it's an easy gift to give um, for people that you don't know who to buy for. So what I've done Bloody is... Yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my go-to. If I don't know what to give someone, I go out on my cell and I give them a bottle of wine. Well, that's it. But, you know, to make it personal, what I've come up with is the world's first greeting card for wine. So instead of, you know, having to stick it up in these... Are you two together? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is my business partner. So basically... What we've created is a range that you can wrap around any bottle, so it seconds as a gift wrap as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that. And he's written a story on the back. Yeah, so you just handwrite a personal message. Just makes it become a lot more personal, and you can actually relate a design for who you're buying for. So, so it's, it's wrapping. It's a gift. Well, it's a packaging. Gift. Yeah, it's a greeting card for wine. So the point but is... But where do you get the wine from, Brett? What's your, what's your business partner's name, by the way? Alan. Alan, standing yeah. behind you. Get, uh, but maybe you could jump in on this mic. And, yeah. yeah, so basically if you're... Go, go, uh, and go and sit and relax down there. Go on. Go and relax down there because we've already <laughs> spoken to you. Yeah. Go and, 
Okay, you can stay if you want. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, what's your name? Alan. Alan, okay. So, all right, go for yeah. it. So, say you're in a bottle store, Dan Murphy's, mm-hmm. in, and you want to give gift a wine, instead of going to get him in those bags, you know, you can buy a seller app now, personalise it to who you're um, So when you put to. around the pen folds, you put this around the pen folds? Any wine that you want to give. So you buy the wine first, buy the card, there's two adhesive strips on the back, yeah. write your personal message, yeah. wrap it around the bottle. What about I bought a really fucking expensive bottle of wine. I want them to be really, really impressed how. Well, basically, we, you know, these are the original sort of startup ones that we've come up with. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get into gold foiling and a lot more. Like clear ones or something yeah. with some, like, um, yeah, you'll end up with. More classic look. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah so okay. this yeah, is yeah. just the start of, you know, your birthdays and your um, events. You know, so where will you sell this, guys? Um, well, through, through. I mean, how would you buy it? How would I buy it? Basically, we're wanting to get into, you know, your liquor stores yeah. um, as the go to. Yeah. Or online. Um, we've I mean, got a website at the moment, sellerapps.com.au, where we're selling them. What's it called? Sellerapps. Seller, C-E-L-L-A-R-Apps.com.au. name, yeah. Yeah, so basically we're selling them online. I started it in November last year. Got a local paper, the Gold Coast Bulletin, do a write-up, and it snowballed very quickly. Yep. Well, this is definitely an awareness campaign. How much you sell a pack for or whatever it is? $4.99 each. Each wrap? Yeah, each Five bucks? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So basically, you know... How did you pick your price? Well, I was looking at sort of the Hallmark cards range from about 7 to $10 at the mm. moment. So I wanted to be lower than them, but because it's a different concept, you know, to have that sort of price range where to add $5... It's a card, isn't it? Yeah. It's a card, basically. It's, so that's, it's, that's it's, your, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it. a greeting card for wine. Who does the design, like, you know, artistically? Myself, yeah. You're being the graphic designer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess there's no limit as to... Well, the only limit is your ability to create in your imagination. Yeah. But there's no limit to what these things can look like. Can people sort of co-design with you? Well, that's what I want to get into. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of the card industry at the moment will have um, a spot where you can, you know, join designers because I want a different look. You know, I want it to have a different branding and, you know, I don't want the same Christmas one every year. I want to have, you know... Why don't you run a competition on the Gold Coast and get the uh, Courier Mail to run it for you and yeah. make a prize of a 1000 bucks for the person who comes up with the best design. Yeah, definitely. Good you know, promo. that's the sort of range. Because we want to have sort of 20 cards per store where you've got your birthdays, you know, different events. Um, it just sort of personalises it. So you know, Christmas time I give away every year maybe 100 bottles of wine, like yeah. really good wine. Um, and be cool to do something like that for me. Um, I, I'm not sure if I want to cover the label up. I might like to put it like more up around here perhaps? Yeah. Have you thought about putting it? I'm not trying to do your business. Yeah, no, the reason why it's a cover is it does second as a gift wrap. So on the um, actual side, it says that it's a novelty item and that this is meant to be removed. Yeah. So giving you as a gift now, what you can now do is peel that off to reveal what wine we've bought you underneath. Uh, Right. I can do Oh, the revelation, the (laughs) the reveal. (laughs) So it's not meant to be a permanent... Right, oh, right. It's, it's a, it really is a card. It's not a, like, yeah. a permanent stick-on thing. That's it. So it's just a double-sided adhesive. Ah, okay, I get it. To actually take off. Okay, so you're encouraging me to do that. Yeah. Yeah, right. So ah, now cool. there's your present. Very good. Thanks very much, guys. That's so, cool. yeah. So basically it's okay, just Okay, I, wow I get it, I get it, I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a good drop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a $22.50. <laughs> Damn Murphy's. No, no, that's a good, that's a good wine. That's a good wine. So that's, yeah, that's the that. basis of it. So it's not to be kept on. What do you guys all think about that? That's great. Yeah. I told him, you know, we could do it with beer. Yeah, yeah. Beer. Yeah, yeah. You know, hard well. liquor, there's so many different ways out there. But it just, 
changes the look. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's to get cool. those bags these days, you, you rock up with it and it's like, here's a bottle of wine because it's in the bags. They re-gift those bags because, you know, everyone gets something, has a pile at home. This sort of just personalised What about if you, I mean, I'm just sitting here, I'm trying to design, but what about if you, uh, instead of had a bag, you had a, a bag that was like like a card but it was bigger, you know, like and, and like the bag was the card. Yeah. I mean, like, because you're right. I mean, they're shit-looking bags, aren't they? I mean, they are. <laughs> they're clunky, they're yeah. big, and they're all, like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. all you could gift yeah. wine with. So, you know, for people to gift it, they could either add a normal card, which is big and awkward to attach, and, you know, what do you do? Stick a card to a bottle of wine. This just wraps around, unwrap it, you know, it reveals your gift. You can keep it all as the you would give wine. You know, like St George Bank gives out, they must give out thousands of bottles of wine at every Christmas time. Yeah, well, that's why we did this I'm Yellow Brick Road one for yeah, you, no. just as an idea of, you know, yeah, no, you can cool. do companies, you can do um, hotels. The, you know, the, the bad news is Yellow Brick Road doesn't give gifts at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have We're to We're gifting that. all year, every day. Our interest rate's so low, it's a gift. But, but um, um, <laughs> the most important thing that I found, and, you know, with starting it, is um, the greeting card industry is $500 million industry in Australia alone. Yeah. $9.5 billion industry in the US alone. So the money in greeting cards is massive. Yeah. So to have just this different angle on it, you know, basically the liquor stores would become our news agencies. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. we're really wanting to become no, the cool. hallmark of the wine industry. Think Group. Yeah. You know, think, you know Think Group, the Australian yeah. group called Ink Group? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, you could be, they're, they're very valuable organisations. I think they've been sold, but that's a very valuable organisation. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the money in it's amazing and, you know, the sales that you can sort of get through it if we get into those, you know, stores throughout Australia. Distribution and awareness is key. Yeah. yeah, it's you, just educating you've people. You've got to get it through the liquor stores. Yeah. You've got to get on the shelves. Yeah. And how you going to do that? Well, we've been approaching them at the moment. It's all new, you know. Just Running out the shoe leather. Yep. Yeah. Knocking on doors. Need to get some, and you getting, know, contacts. getting good pickup from it? Yeah, great. I mean, the sales have been phenomenal, like, of what we've got just from the start-up. Um, Make any all, money out of this? I mean, is it, how much money is How much profit? You don't have to tell me. But is there a good margin in the five bucks? Massive, Yeah. yeah. I guess you'll be able to get these printed in China at some stage when you get at enough, some stage. Orders. At the moment, I'm just doing it locally. Okay, but um, yeah, basically, you know, it, it's costing us. You know, the cost is in the printing. The cost is in the distribution. Yeah, 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 and and the merchandising. Well, guys, I like it. It's cool. It's simple. Thanks. Smart. Yeah, it is simple, but you know, these simple things these days is sometimes the you know yeah. big things that take off. Everybody's trying to sit in and design new new technology to change the world, and you've just gone and. Uh, Change the greeting, greeting card. I love it. Yeah. Okay, who wants to be next? I'll go. All right, get on the microphone. Name, uh, serial number, rank. <laughs> uh, my name's Joel Arnold and I work for a company called Dun & Bradstreet. Dun & Bradstreet, the old DMV. Got old DMV. So what, Sydney or where? Uh, I'm currently in Victoria. Victoria, yeah. Melbourne. Okay, um, which part of Dun & Bradstreet? Are you? Well, you better tell everyone what Dun & Bradstreet does first. Right, so um, actually we've got a, an ex-employee down the other end of the, the table here, so... Um, uh, but we're a credit reporting and collections business, so... A little bit more complicated as an organisation than that. I mean, a global business. Yeah, global business. Here in Australia, though, we, we, we want to try and focus on the life cycle of, of customers. So how to find new customers, credit assess those customers, and if you've got an issue with those customers, how do you collect the money from those customers? And you also are in, um, in deeply into data mining or harvesting. I mean, you have you guys, you guys, I don't know if it's the area you're in, but you run some pretty crazy computer um, IT analysis of customers' behaviours and matching and scraping and harvesting yeah. and uh, realigning. I mean, there's some pretty 
crazy shit going on there. Yeah, so... Is I that mean, what you, you were involved in that part of the business? No, so I, I specialise in the collection side of the business, which is only unique for Australia. Um, but globally, yeah, absolutely, DMB is a data company. Um, but we've we've just been recently purchased by a private equity company here in Sydney. You, called, down in Bradstreet? Yeah, so... Serious? Yep. By, Australia uh, or globally? No, just in Australia. I didn't know that. Yeah, so by a company called Archie So did Dun & Bradstreet globally sell to the... Private equity. Private equity group here? Yep. What, what's that? What, I don't understand. Uh, so we've... Yeah, DMB's got uh, a central business overseas, mm-hmm. um, but then in what it calls a, a partner market, it's, I think, a great way to think about it is it's almost like a franchise. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, uh, in Australia, we were under a P model... Uh, Jeez, Private late, equity model. Yep, late 2000s. Uh, we got bought back by DB Global. Yep. Um, and we've just come out of that again. So we were bought by Archer Capital in 2000. Oh, Archer Capital. Yeah, so 2000. Oh, yeah, just last year. So 15. So, yep. and the, what's the experience now being back under private equity group as opposed to being under the mothership? Um, well... Uh, look, in in Australia, where where our biggest part of the business was was in the collections business, and that's slightly different to the the global business. So, you know, part of oh, as well as having a consumer based credit bureau, so um, DMB has always been more noted for its commercial um, information. I think uh, the key difference is getting uh, investment to grow for the need that's here in Australia and throughout Asia. Um, so it, it feels good. I mean, I've been with the business for 14 years and a lot of that time that I grew up in it was under a was under the priv- uh, the previous PE model. So um, I, I like it. It's got a lot more focus, a lot more grit to it. They're really outcome focused. Biggest competitor in Australia is Aveda? Uh, on the credit bureau side, yes. Yep. Um, on the collection side, uh, there's a very low barrier for entry, so there's hundreds of, of collections. You've been explaining to everybody what you mean by Dun & Bradstreet's collection side. Yeah. Um, so... It's called Debt Management Solutions, so DMS. Um, what That's a fancy name to be nice, so tell me what it really means. Yeah, right. So uh, we just help businesses of all different types uh, increase their cash flow, and we do that through... Collect their debts. Collecting their debts, yeah. Um, so we do that in two ways. We do it under our customer's brand, uh, but we also do it under um, our brand. So, so what you mean by that is you will go to a customer, if the customer wants this, and it probably costs a little bit more, but you'll say to the customer, um, we will act like, we'll pretend that we're your, you... And we will collect those debts on your behalf, yeah. for which we'll charge you a fee. Yep. Um, so let's say Yellow Brick Road is owed some money. We're owed thousand um, dollars. Dun and Bradstreet Collections Division, where you are, yep. will uh, ring the customer up and say to the customer, "Listen, this is Yellow Brick Road calling. Pay your fucking money back." <laughs> and uh, and then you'll take what? Yeah. So what's the range? Well, look, there's there's two ways. So in the, in that model that you explained, it tends to be more of a transactional based pricing. It can yep. be outcome based, but um, it, it's probably important to distinguish that at, in that part of our business, we're really there to create a connection with the customer. So your traditional thinking of debt collection isn't really there. So uh, and the and the way that I like to explain it, um, you know, say for example, you've got say a home loan and you you're late on your loan. Yep. Um, generally, your experience with that with that bank or whoever it might be, is the bill coming into your house. So um, what we want to try and do there is just enhance that customer experience. Now, that is different, though, to say if you are severely delinquent on your home loan or your credit card, um, you know, the Dun & Bradstreet brand is used in that instance to create the level of escalation and it is a, a little bit more of a harder uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So So what you're doing is so what you're um, doing here is you're distinguishing between helping, say, Yellow Brick Road... Um, have a better relationship with a customer when the customer is maybe a, a couple of days behind or yeah. whatever. There yeah. could be some sort of glitch in their system, their own banking system, That's where right. they're transferring the dollars from. Um, so you you don't want to 
on our behalf. You wouldn't want to piss them off. You're actually trying to say, well, you, you want the customer to say, well, that, that's cool. Um, I'm a couple of days behind. Mm. Yellow Brick Road through Dun & Bradstreet. Um, how nice they They weren't sort of jamming into me. Yep. Um, as opposed to those times when someone's totally delinquent yep. and um, basically not going to pay. Yeah, and then great. in which case it escalates into the Dun & Bradstreet brand. Someone goes, oh, my God, Dun & Bradstreet are after me. And um, they might either pay or put their hands up and just yep. say, you know, go away. Go, or, 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 you know, go down that sort of horrible legal path you have to go down sometimes, which yeah. is very rare in our organisation. We don't do it very often. No. So you're an outsourcing organisation for someone like us who, yep. you know, and I, I should say that this to those people listening, the debt collection or the arrears management part of any business, whether you're collecting debtors, money from your electrical client, contracting clients or in our case, home loan borrowers or whatever the business is, it's a pretty tricky business and it's a specialised business. It's mm. not an easy thing to collect money from people. You know, it's – do you ring them at 8 o'clock at night? I mean, do you have to come home after you work the full day and start doing it, making your phone calls, finding other people home? They Generally speaking, if they don't want to pay or they can't pay, they don't answer the phone. They sort of know who's ringing. It's sort of a, uh, logistically a, a, a very tough business and a sp- very much a specialised business. I was a GE for a long time and yeah. General Electric were geniuses at it. Yeah. Um, because they had all that, bought all those businesses, right, like Avco and all those um, sort of uh, those tough lending businesses. Um, and it, it's very few people do it properly. Yeah, and I, and I, I think um, it's a good point because you, you want to, uh, if you're running a business, you want to focus in on what you're good at. You don't want to be, um, you know, spending a lot of time and energy on things that you probably don't do so well. And, you know, if you think about cash flow management, you talk a lot about that in your in your show and for small business, that's really important. So, um, and in my experience, you know, it's never really done all that well. So, you know, what we want to try and do is, whether it be acting as your brand, make sure that we give you that expertise to, to reinforce your brand with the customer, you know, improve your cash flow. Um, but on the other side, if it was, you know, for some of the utility companies that we work for, um, it's really about having a, a level of um, technology and, and knowledge to be able to, you know, repeat a very difficult conversation at scale that has a great outcome for um, for our customers. But also- you, you, I have a lot of respect for um, Dun & Bradstreet because I've, I've known them for a long, long time. Um, the sort of smarts uh, in terms of data levels that someone like Dun & Bradstreet have is ridiculous. Mm. Um so I would say to those people who are looking at cash flow solutions, it's worthwhile probably talking to someone like Dun and Bradstreet um, because they can sort of do it cheaper than you can <laughs> because they got scale. Mm. That's and they've got and they've already got the investment in the the smarts, whether it's an IT uh, IT solution or a data solution or just picking up a phone call in a call centre, ringing someone at seven o'clock at night to see yep. when they can pay their money. Um, they've also got the smarts. They're smart enough to realise it's not the old style, heavy-handed debt collection like it used to be. Um, it's there's probably a scripted environment where you script yeah. the phone call. Yeah. So uh, in conjunction with the client. Yeah. In the in the first party side. So when we're acting as the brand, absolutely. So yep. a lot of that is done. The whole process is built with the customer. Right. Um, the whole. You know, that part of our business is built around our customers. Um, when you're talking about more of the, the larger scale collections that we do, um, w- you know, that's all our IP and that's why people come to us. So, you know, the way that we go about those phone calls... Uh, Depends can, on the situation. Yeah, exactly. And so we put a lot of time, particularly with, you know, as you can appreciate the environment that we work in, we want to be doing it right. We want to be seen to be doing it right. So And not heavy-handed, you know, correct. compassionate, blah, yep. blah, blah, all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's very cool. Uh, 
Can I ask you, the call centre is Australian-based? Yeah, so it's all here. It's um, all here. So you get an Aussie on the phone? Yep. So we, well, we, well, someone, not necessarily an Aussie, but like yeah. someone in from Australia will get on the phone. Yeah, we, we do We do have a, a secondary call centre in New Zealand where we do a fair bit of work out of, but, you know, we, we certainly view that as, um, you know, I explain it to our customers, it's almost like opening a door in our Victoria call centre and you're in New Zealand. So right. it's all done under our infrastructure, um, same training program. So for argument's sake, it is all pretty much here. Um, but we've got, uh, th- I think, space for th- 300 FTE here in Victoria and 100 FTE in um, New Zealand. Okay. Is there anything else you want to tell us? Because, I mean, I, I, I actually, we do talk about cash flow. You're right. Mm. And cash flow is probably one of the most important things that small businesses or any business has got to get on top of. Mm. Cash flow, one of the t- cash flow techniques is outsourcing the collection of your debts if you have if you have some difficulty or you might be just the sort of person doesn't really want to ring up anybody, you just want to get on a business and that yeah. you might be embarrassed about it or just don't like that part of the business. Yeah. Um, so I, I, um, I'd applaud that and I'd say to people listening that that's worthwhile following up. Is there anything else you want to say? No, look, other than, um, you know, we're, we're, we're really keen to start expanding this first party side of our business. It used to be very big a number of years ago. Um, I think the key message is, is that it is, it's an outsourcing solution, but it's controlled by, you know, if you outsource insource. I mean, yep. I, it's an outsource insource. I yep. mean, I, I, look, I get it because yep. I actually think it's a great outcome. Yeah, but it's, it's done here. Yeah, it's done here. It's not offshore. It's done here. It's done with the best technology and the, and data that the world probably has today. Yep. Um, and it's done on scale, so you're you're not paying you're paying a scale cost. It's it's also tailored to what you want. Yep, makes sense. Actually, the debt management stuff and cash flow management, Nick, for us, um, it's probably worthwhile. We do a small segment on that because you know I forgot about the Dun and Bradstreet's of the world. I mean, there's a lot of I love a lot of new online solutions coming out too. But uh, yeah, it's interesting because you guys will always better compete on price. So. Price-wise, they're probably going to be the cheapest because they've got the scale. Well, we would love to come back and talk to you more about cool. that. Cool. Ryder, who's next? We've got two likely lads down there and we've got one likely lad here. Let's finish this end of the table. Okay. What's your name? Um, Adam Gordon from uh, I live in Bondi. just yeah. came over for the morning. It's been, yeah, just a, more, more came here to ask you a question, actually. Okay, um, cool. I've started up my own little distribution company. I import a product from Sweden. Uh, it's called Bungee Pump of Sweden. What's uh, called? Bungee Pump. It's like a walking pole but with a resistance in it. Um, a walking pole with a resistance? Tell me what a yeah. walking pole is first. Walking pole. So like a trekking pole but oh, you see those, a resistance. You see a lot of people over 50 sort of walking yeah, around exactly. with them. Yeah, exactly. So there's a what is huge that? I, I thought they were trying to practice for skiing or something. What is that? <laughs> um, one, it offers stability. So yep, obviously yep. the rigid poles offer stability. Um, and then they can use it to walk longer, uh, enable them to yeah take pressure off their joints. So that oh, that's actually, takes pressure. Okay, yeah, so it's exactly. like a bit like a walking stick, but sort but of cooler. Cooler, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, so your one, the difference one yep. has a resistance inside. So which it means has, when you push down on the pole, it actually activates the upper body. So rather than just a rigid pole that uses the upper body, it actually activates it. So, so is it meant to exercise our bodies, or meant to make the pole more? Uh, is is it meant to take? Um, force out of the ground so it actually elevates. Does your, both. Does both. Yeah, so it hits a point so it actually stops. Yeah, it gives you, it's a, like a rigid pole essentially. Yeah. But then when it gets to that point, but then on the way down it can go from four, six or ten kilos of resistance. Right, and the and the resistance is sort of like um, shock absorber. It's like yeah, shocks almost, on yeah. A bike. It's, a, it's like a rehab band. Like, yeah, 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 Like yeah. exactly the rehab bands that you'd be using for your bicep. But, okay, so, um, okay. So in a pole. In a pole, right, okay, cool. Yeah. Very so good. it offers stability. Um, they are manufactured in Sweden, so I import directly from Sweden, which is a 
huge cost. But is um, it like a medical device? Not yet. Not yet. No, so this is the this is the question. Um, so because because it's a product and it's not tech, and you guys talk a lot about tech. Um, what what's out there for small businesses to get like help or mentors from a product point of view rather than tech point of view? In terms of when you say mentors or help, or mentor help. What funding, do you, funding, like that, okay. Yeah. Well, funding. Let's put funding aside because it's funding is based on the 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 ability to fund will be based on how much money someone can make out of it. Yeah. So that comes down to demand and the distribution process and the cost and the margin and you know the viability, the competition, you know uh, price points. Um, so let's just put that aside because that's a that's a whole discussion, a massive discussion. Yeah, um, put funding aside. So you when you say mentorship. Adam, Adam is. is yep, yeah. yep. When you say mentorship, what do you mean? So someone that can help someone. Oh, like a small well, let's, let, let's be let's be let's be crude about it. Yeah. Someone say let's say say someone like me can help you. Put, yeah. it, put it in the first person. So. Yeah. Okay. So if you could help me to to promote a product or, or or new ways to to promote a product, we've tried everything. We've tried so from markets to we've had meetings with Rebel Sport. We've had well super um, super retail group. Uh, we've had meetings with pretty much like every foundation in Australia. Mm-hmm. Feels like, um, but it just feels like that the because there's no backing or no nothing there to sort of. It's just me and my business, my silent business partner who who literally just does back end uh, web design, uh, and myself just pushing this this product, which could be great. Like they've sold two hundred thousand pairs in Sweden alone. Why? But do Swedish people use these more than Australian people? Yeah, because of the conditions, or because they they. Uh, in ice, they use the rigid poles, so if it's slippery or whatever, that helped them. But then just because it's sort of like a uh, – yeah, because they're used to it as they're used to skiing and all that sort of stuff. Okay, but is it, it, is, it is quite big here. Like, there's is that a trekking. part of the problem, though? Is that part, is, it is, so what is the demand for rigid ones here now? Um, it's getting larger. Like, I mean, with the Oxfam Trail Walk coming on and um, all of these, like, wild women on top doing the coastal treks and stuff like that, like, that it's getting week. more – yeah, exactly. They're once every month or something like that. So, oh, they do, they do monthly? Or, yeah, Di Westaway, she runs – Tracks all the time, so. right? Um, um, but yeah, I'm in touch with those guys. But they but it's just that that sort of the market is building up. So that that sort of like getting out, getting active. So my view on mentorship, like, I should, let me say this to you, I'll be sat in front of Adam. Is that mentors shouldn't answer any questions; they should ask the questions. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answers to it because I don't not I don't know any of the facts, and I, I, I just not in your industry, no. and I don't even use these things um, yeah, no, generally right. speaking. So mentors should ask questions. So, um, I, I guess I have uh, the. the the answer to your question is to find someone who's going to answer, ask the questions. Yeah. And you've got to be in an environment where people are asking the questions and testing you all the time because it could be, mate, that this is not going to fucking fly. No, that's right. And, uh, you know, whilst it's a good idea, it might yeah. not fly. Um, and what you've got to do is you've got to exhaust all avenues to work out if it will fly. That's a good idea. Um, so as passionate as you can be. I mean, I've yeah. seen so many good ideas and for some reason they just never get up in various regions. Yeah. For, there's, there's always that X factor. How many would you need to sell in Australia to make it worthwhile well, on your profit margin? I mean, what do they I sell mean, for? They sell for $189. How much do you make out of it? 100 bucks? Uh, What's yeah, the margin? About, about 100 bucks. 100. So, if you wanted to make 100,000, you're going to sell 1,000. Yeah. Would you be happy making 100 grand a year out of it? No. No. How much? What would you make you happy? Um, well, they. So we're Come on, our, straight our up. Quite 300 grand 2,000 pair, pairs. Was okay, our, 200 grand a year. Is in our exclusive contract to Australia. You can, you can import 2,000. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So you have to be able to two thousand. Yeah. So that means you, the most you can ever make is two hundred grand a year. Yeah. If, if you make, if it doesn't go. 
if it if it doesn't like if it doesn't sell anything yet, I mean, well, we can sell as many as we want. There's, oh, a, okay. there's no cap. Oh, there's no cap. Okay, so no, no, no. so where do the two? So, oh, sorry, for exclusive rights. Like after which someone else, after which someone else can start, then so. that's what I'd be happy with okay. for now. What would like, you'd be happy with two thousand in per, per annum, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, at, at the, the moment, moment. At yeah. the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what is the mar- current market for selling, buying the rigid ones, for example? I don't know. That's you better find that one out. Yeah, I don't know. You're going to have to find that out because yeah. you're going to know what the market is. You've got to know what your market size is, and that's you must know what your market yeah. size is because it could be there's a, the market size is only two thousand, which means yeah. you're going to have to have hundred percent of the market, which is un, not realistic. No. Um, and how are you going to make? Let's say it's twenty thousand pairs a year rigid ones now in Australia, for argument's sake. Yeah. Um, of which you only want ten percent. You only want two thousand right now, right? Yeah. You're going to work out why. Would people buy yours over and above the competition? So, what does a rigid pair cost? Um, about hundred dollars to hundred and fifty per pole. Okay, so that per pole. Yeah. Yours one hundred eighty nine per, per pair. Yeah. So you got a price. Yeah. Advantage. We're we're in we're, we've sold three hundred pairs in Australia, or in actually in Barrel and Canberra alone. Right. So you got so, so you got a price advantage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now it's got to be um, feature advantage. So how do you get someone to want this over and above everything else? So where would I buy a rigid pair ordinarily? Uh, I can't do. Paddy Pallon. Right, so places like that. do they sell any of these pneumatic style ones? Not, from no, anywhere else? not yet. So have you been to see Paddy Pallon and talk to them? Yeah. And what do they say? Um, they're just hesitant. They do because it's, it's unknown, so they don't really because it's an unknown product or because it's walking poles, for instance. Like, and there's not many there's not many people that know about it mm. or there's no one requesting it just yet. So right. I think that's where it comes down to maybe so, advertising or. Well, I think advertising is going to kill you because at two hundred thousand dollars, you're not going to make enough money to advertise. So it's you, the cost doesn't make sense, um, unless it's digital or um, you know Facebook programs. Um, you, you, this has to be a digital program. It has to basically cost you nothing. Yeah. So you've got to get people actually saying how fucking cool these are or how good they are or get some professor from St Vincent's Hospital to say that, you know, if you're doing these things, these have a double advantage to you because they regenerate something or other. Because when you put it to me right at the beginning, I probably wouldn't go and buy a pair just to rehab my arm. No. Okay, so yeah. I think that's good. That's me, survey one. Yeah. I mean, maybe everyone else in the room have a view of that, but uh, I wouldn't buy that for that purpose because I'm not going to walk around Sydney doing that because I'm not that sort of bloke. No. Um, I'd rather just go to the physio and do whatever I have to do. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I don't know if that's a, a Well, good there's enough. definitely a target market. I don't, definitely don't think that it's hard because we're, I'm based in Sydney and based in Bondi and it's a, it's a harder target market. Um, but there's definitely regional towns that they – so they burn 77% more calories than regular walking. So there is an advantage for the obese population of Australia and there is like that sort of regional area where people can walk in there out at the uh, farm or whatever. You don't have to do it around Sydney. You can go and walk in the national parks or – Stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's culturally. I just. I mean, I don't know anyone else here standing there listening. I mean, it, it's just uh, obviously Swedish people. They're into it. I mean, because yeah, they ski. That's right. And um, it's just. I. I don't. I don't get it. That doesn't mean that Australians aren't going to take it up. Okay. I don't get it. But I'm a generation beyond just about everyone in this room. Um, absolutely everyone in this room. Um, so that wouldn't be something that I would do. Um, so I'm probably the wrong guy to ask the question of. But you just know anyone else in the room? What, what do you guys think? Well, I just believe it's, um, you know, finding if there's a demand for it. It's and but like, would you use it? Uh, it's hard to conceptually visualise what it is. But, you know, maybe if you brought one in so we could see it. Um, yeah, I did actually didn't come in to pitch yeah. my No, 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 no. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. At this point, no, for me. 
But if I saw it and saw the, the practical use of it and understand the benefits and the features of it, then probably I'm a bit more excited about it. But at this yeah. moment, I'm just sort of going, you're, well, you're trying to work out how to get into Batty Palins and those sorts of joints. You've got to make it compelling for them, uh, I think. And they've got to read about it and come to you as opposed to you've already been to them. So they've got to come to you. They're going to say, hey, hang on. Well, that Adam guy come and saw us, we can get these. So how do you, you've got to work out some way of um, getting the story up. I mean, you've got the story up now, but, you know, there's not enough listeners that are going to ring you up after this. Maybe there will be. You, you never know. Someone from Paddy Palin could be listening. Um, we love Paddy Palin. Hope you're listening. <laughs> um, but somehow you've got to get, I think your best style, your best person you need to talk to in terms of marketing sense is probably a, a publicist. I mean, somebody like Roxy yeah. Jasenko. I don't know. Someone who... I contact her after, actually, your show. Did you? She didn't come back to you? Too busy. Yeah, that's the problem. See, Roxy's got a limited number of clients because yeah. she, she's all over them, you know, and she works them really hard. But there are plenty of other people out there, yeah. publicists out it's there. Defi- it's definitely not the coolest product in the world. Like, I mean, it's... But it's yeah, but one publicists of, make them hard. cool. Yeah, that's, that's what you know, I'm... You've got to make it cool. Yeah, that's um, right. And, you know, you've got, you've got to get one cool person using it yeah. and up on Instagram. And next thing you know, you know, maybe some social influencers, Nick Boris. Yeah, Seb. Yeah. There's a story in the Batuta. <laughs> actually, I could, yeah, Batuta. But actually, I could see something uh, going on here, Seb. Seb's behind the camera today, but uh, the streets of Sydney could be taking the piss out of someone with them. Um, yeah. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, Why not? I, I think but, you got to do something yeah. in a publicist sense. Yes. Um, because. <laughs> Who? Abba. Abba. Because it's Sweden, isn't it? Yeah, it's Sweden. Yeah, oh, there you go. I don't know if he'd be able to afford that part, but <laughs> at this stage, just hope for one day when he's selling millions of them around the world. But. Um, yeah, you've got to get a publicist. I think that's probably your best bet, publicist on board or who can actually get some influencer to say that they reckon they're wonderful. I mean, like if you could get uh, Hugh Jackman, I mean, I'm, I know it's crazy, but if you get Hugh Jackman to say, look, there's something he uses to work out and, you know, and to get on X-Men or something, um, it sort of elevates the position of it very quickly. And now let's sort of dial down from Hugh Jackman <laughs> down a long way. But a publicist could get you there perhaps, or a good publicist. Um, I only I know Roxy because I don't really deal with publicists as such, um, but I know Roxy as one. Um, I don't know any other publicists, but if there's any other publicists listening to the show and they want to actually uh, hook in with you, Adam, um, yeah. how do they find you? Uh, just go on to www.bungiepump.com.au. You better spell that. www.bungiepump.com.au. P-U-M-P. Yeah, pump like a pump. Pump as in pump. Yeah. Bungie pump. Okay. Because... I think your first thing you need to do is get some publicity and some endorsement. It has to be social because otherwise it's going to be too expensive. You need then off the back of that to somehow drive an article into some newspapers that people actually still read um, and or online. Um, yeah, we're doing on, the Seniors Expo next week actually. Okay, well then so be, be, there'll, there'll be bloody media down there who write stuff for seniors. So you've got to jam into them. You've got to be pestering their life at them. Give them a free pair and just rip you know, you yeah. don't, don't, and this takes a long time. Awareness programs don't happen overnight. No. They do if you want to spend $20 million. But if you don't spend $20 million, they take time. And you just got to keep building and building and building and building. It still doesn't mean you'll succeed because I don't know culturally whether it's something that's going to happen here, right? No, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean it will or won't. I mean, I just don't have a clue. Um, but you won't know until you keep banging away at it. And this is one of those things is I would say, don't leave, leave your day, day job. Yeah. I mean that. Yeah. So don't say, oh, we're gonna, don't put all the bets on this. Yeah, um, I did but, I did do this full-time for six months and then now I'm working for uh, Disrupt Surfing, the guys that came in here, the online. Yep, yep, good. Areas, yeah. So 
some work for those guys. Stay, stay in that environment. Yep. This is the sort of stuff you do when you get a chance. And it means it's going to take longer. But you've got every opportunity to display it, to put it on show, to talk to a media that's around that area and get yourself access to a publicist who's going to say, you might say to the publicist, listen, I can't pay you. I'll give you 5% of the deal. Yeah. You, know, you might have to, you're going to have to throw a little bit of equity away. To be honest, it's not worth it at the moment anyway. That's right. So you might as well give 5% away, yeah. whatever, a percentage in return for services. So you've got to need to do a bit of bartering because you can't, it just doesn't make sense. To, I'm saying to you, don't spend cash on this sort of stuff if you can avoid it because it doesn't make sense at the moment okay. um, to spend cash. Yeah. Um, you swap equity. Okay. And, and if it gets up, it gets up. Publicist, media, articles, exhibitions, build, 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 build. And then at some stage you're going to say, yep, this is a goer. I'm going to go full-time this and, make it, and I'm going to raise some money for it. Or, and you might do crowdfunding. You know, and this is the this is a perfect one for crowdfunding because, you know, you might you know the f- first million dollars that you raise, they all might get a set of these. I don't know. I mean, that's that's yeah. could be how it works. Um, uh, you go for funding, or you might say, "This is not going to work," and you just give up the game. With crowdfunding, how how does it like? So what web? Like, I mean, after a, a few of the episodes you've mentioned crowdfunding, I've gone onto Google and Google crowdfunding website. What was the um, Nick Boris? What's the one it's we started? It's one called uh, Our Crowd. It's pretty good. Our Crowd. Our Crowd. Okay. Um, actually, that's equity crowdfunding, I think. But then there's... Kickstarter. Kickstarter. It's yeah, that's, that's, that's traditional crowd where you sell, pre-sell the product. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a pre-sale. Yeah. But this one's a good one for for, yeah. for the typical crowd, some funding sort of environments. It's a pre-sale, so... Yeah. That's a good idea of understanding the demand for your product. Too, yeah, it's right? a great idea. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, I, I listened to the whole thing and yeah. I, I think you really just need to test the demand for your product first because it, it feels like you've sort of seen one market which is idiosyncratic to whatever is going on in Scandinavia and you're yeah. trying to sort of replicate it here in Australia, not, not understanding that they're two very different cultures and yeah. some sets of people. So, um, yeah, that would be a good sort of uh, tool to, to use to not only fund, you know, the purchase of, of, of these products and bring them to the country but also understand the demand. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So, like, if you sold a thousand of them, that's quite a lot of money. Yeah, that's yeah, quite a lot of money to raise yeah. up front. Yeah, cool. Perfect. Thank you. Good on you, Adam. Right, who have we got left? I can speak. I can speak. My name's uh, Damien Timms, and I'm from Australia's fastest-growing legal firm, uh, law, uh, law firm rather, uh, Legal Vision. Now, we started about three years ago. Uh, we originally started as an as an online marketplace. And then, as is the usual case for most startups, we found that we had to pivot, and pivot was what we did. So, 18 months ago, uh, we pivoted towards being a a legal service provider. So, can um, I just, sorry, your first name again? Damien. Damien, I just want to quickly explain to those listening what pivot means. It's a technical term, and you used it sort of rather loosely there. Um, all our listeners don't really know what you mean by pivot, but effectively, it means you you're in one spot and you turn around and go another direction. That's right. In the in the business in right. in the in the thing that you're building. Okay? That's right. So explain how you pivoted. Well, as I said, we originally started as an online marketplace, and and by that I mean <clears throat> we had a platform by which uh, if a client had a particular legal need, we would connect them to a, a lawyer uh, anywhere around Australia. Uh, what we then found was there was uh, such demand that. Uh, clients didn't want to be referred on to a third party and wanted to, to only deal with uh, with one shop. So we incorporated our own legal practice and we started providing uh, legal services to uh, startups and uh, small businesses. So that's your pivot. 
That's right. Okay. That's right. But but what what we have done uh, is take the principles from startups, namely excellent uh, customer experience, and, and we've applied that to legal services. So we ensure that each customer experience uh, is exactly the same regardless of the size of the client. So whether you are a, uh, a, a, a tradie or a franchisor or a big four bank, uh, you will get exactly the same service uh, regardless of what your particular legal uh, matter is. So we uh, generally uh, advise uh, clients in the corporate and commercial space, uh, IT and uh, online, uh, intellectual property uh, and uh, employment slash uh, franchising. Okay, so I, I'm a startup, okay, yep. and I'm and I'm Walker's Beer, Walker's yep. Pale Ale, and I go onto your website. What's your website again? Legalvision.com.au. 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 I go to your website, and uh, what am I going to find there? You will find. Uh, information that might be relevant to your particular business plan, whether that is how to protect your intellectual property, yep. uh, whether it's a, a trademark or whatever it, uh, whatever it is that you uh, happen to uh, to need. Um, if you have, for example, issues to do with uh, raising raising funds, uh, you might need a um, you might need a shareholders agreement. You might want a convertible note. There will be sort of articles there that you can read. So it's a library. Yes, you got a library there, and and uh, similar to that, we will we we have made available uh, all of our uh, legal documents uh, in a very sort of basic form, so that you can download those, and if you want to use them, you can, uh, but if you want them to be customised to your particular uh, needs, you can ring up our uh, call centre, and that's based in in Sydney, and you will deal with a you know client care person. And they will talk you through the uh, the process, and they'll ask you some questions about your particular business model and what may or may not be relevant to you. And then, if you want to proceed, we will come back to you with a fixed fee quote for our legal services, and you will then be referred on to a lawyer within our within our uh, enterprise. And, and, and cheaper than, a, than most lawyers are. I mean, startups have got no money, right? So. Yes, yes, we are. So we are we 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 make a point of providing a fixed fee service. Um, so, like a, a fixed fee prices rather, but with a top tier legal service. So we've all come out of firms like, uh, you know, Herbert Smith, Freehills, uh, Mallison's, uh, Baker and McKenzie, and we've realised that working for the man, you know, in the big end of town is basically a waste of time. And you know, you're you're much better off starting starting your own thing. So so we've. I, I, I can't emphasise enough how we've taken the principles of startups and we've. So they're like a thousand bucks an hour. Like, well, what would you know after they've come out and they're now working for, with, with your platform? What yep. are they charging the startups? To? Well, we don't do hourly rates. Okay, right, it's a fixed price. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so that's great. unless unless there's a real reason, you'd be the first law firm to do that. <laughs> well, um, no, I don't know if that's quite true, but yeah. I mean, our but our point is is like you know we've. In terms of our back end, we have worked things out so that we understand what our gross margins are and we know what our customer acquisition costs are. So we can very keenly price our products and we will scope your matter, you know, which are quite quite narrowly and quite particular to your to your particular legal issue. And that will be the work that you get. And once the once we put the price out there, that is the price. So you control the clock. You're also controlling the clock by That's having right. by making sure the scope That's is, right. is pertinent. That's In other right. words, you know, sometimes you go to a lawyer and the scope sort of blows out because it could be the it could be me, the client, 
causing the problem. I might be just asking a whole lot of stupid questions, well, which are totally irrelevant to what it is I really went there in the first place for, and just just run, running the clock up, and I'm getting I'm paying eight hundred bucks an hour, a thousand bucks an hour, whatever it is. That's right. So um, that, that's interesting. So what you're doing here is you're disintermediating um, law firms. Um, to and you're sort of taking away all that administrative cost that sits in that thousand bucks an hour. That's right. That the law firm has to recover, and you're um, reducing it down as lowest, well, closer to its lowest common denominator, which allows you then to build a cheaper fixed price for the same outcome. That's right. And 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 in addition to being like a legal service provider, we are we have our own sort of you know IT um, platforms which allow say like our larger clients to to effectively implement what is um, a CRM tool so that if you're a franchisor, for example, and you've got 100 franchisees, we can install a platform for you that allows you to see, you know, when each kind of lease is coming up for a review or when the franchise agreement, you know, is, is coming up to be uh, renegotiated. And we can do all of that back-end legal work and give you the tool to have a much better control over how your, uh, um, over how your business is uh, operating. So, so we've taken... Um, all of those, uh, all of those sort of bad things of from from big traditional sort well, of inefficient. That's right. Well, that's right. But it's the kind of thing that people don't like. I mm. mean, clients don't like it when their emails are not responded to. They don't like it when you know they feel like if they if they want to talk to you, it's going to cost them eight hundred dollars an hour. Like if you do want to ring me up, I'll tell you you've got you know um, a certain number of calls that you can make. We will fix a time for you to make a call. You can ask whatever questions you like about your particular document. Mark, if you want to talk about whatever it is, um, you know, the current state of the economy while, while, while we're talking, that's fine. It's your time and you can ask me whatever questions it is that you like and, and which you think are relevant to your, to your business. So, so what we've really tried to do is to run a law firm as a corporation so that the lawyer's only job is to do the legal work. We don't have rock star partners whereby, you know, if a partner sort of ups and then leaves, they take a whole chunk of the business sort of with them. So we have, and that's why we are attractive to investors because we, we closed our Series A round um, a couple of months ago and we had a, a very serious uh, national law firm, Gilbert and Tobin, invest in us. Um, and we're uh, halfway through our Series B round at the moment. Oh, mate, Danny Gilbert. Danny Gilbert. Danny Gilbert was down in our offices in Surrey Hills, just making sure that we were legit. And it used we to be my firm, but my law, the firm I used to use, Gilbert and Tobin. Many years well, ago. that's. I mean, it's interesting, say, in terms of in terms of Gilbert and Tobin, so that you know, I mean, we have a nominal ceiling of say we won't uh, do an acquisition larger than say twenty five million dollars or something like that. Um, but when the client does reach the stage where they need a, like a serious top tier law firm, we simply pass them up the chain to to Gilbert and Tobin. So that's that's how we see the uh, the model working. And for and for all the startup sort of clients and then the small businesses out there, I mean, it's not. I think it's kind of patronising for top tier law firms to say, oh, we have this little offshoot where we can offer you, you know, your shareholders <coughs> agreement and your convertible note. You really want to come to a place like us where. As a startup, we actually live and breathe this stuff, and we feel everybody's pain in terms of in terms of issues that 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 small businesses sort of face. So, and we've worked out how to make money out of, you know, um, drafting convertible notes and and uh, constitutions and shareholders agreements and so on and so forth. So, we're not using, you know, a startup clients as a lost leader uh, in order to find the next Atlassian or some kind of unicorn yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, that's not, that's not our business model. Damien, you just mentioned a few, a few key documents. What are, the, what are the 
top three things or the first three things or legal initiatives or documents or bits of legal sort of um, engagement that a startup needs or startup or, and a small business needs, um, to, needs to look at before. Well, I'd certainly say you, you need going. a shareholders agreement. Yeah. Uh, if you if you have any kind of partners or anything like that, then you you, you must have a shareholders agreement. Uh, you in, you should invariably have an IP deed of assignment. If you, if there's any kind, I mean, if like the gentleman who was talking about his um, uh, his polls, his uh, bungee poles. I mean, is that a, an exclusive contract, uh, for example? I mean, that's that really is the linchpin of your business, right? And if that stuff is not locked down, then as an investor, it's going to be difficult to say. You know, for me to say to you, well, in five years' time, you might not have that that contract at all. I mean, it might go to Paddy Pound. So why should I invest in that? For the gentleman who has the beer, I mean, the the recipes for the IPA, uh, in terms of copywriting and 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 ensuring that that IP is adequately protected, whether it's by way of uh, license through the people who originally held those recipes. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you absolutely must have uh, have in place. So, so Nick. In terms of the top three documents, I'd say shareholders agreement, IP deed of assignment, and invariably, and if you're going down the financing route, um, being clear about the uh, the terms of the convertible note. Convertible note being borrowed money. That's Money right. you're going to borrow and how that note converts into equity down the track and That's at what right. rate. If indeed went. it is a note, you know, it could just be straight equity. It, it, it yeah, could Whatever be. the terms of the finance are, equity right. or debt. That's right. Okay. And and all that before you get going or can you can you leave it? Like, say, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of these... Startups, they you know just collectively a few friends, and they don't really establish a formal operating framework at the get go. That's a mistake. Is, is that a mistake? Okay. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. I yeah, mean, okay. you should should definitely have a shareholders agreement right uh, in place. I mean, uh, before you do anything else. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, actually, so in terms of our small business listeners and uh, startups, we got we just bookended uh, the discussion. We got a, we got one more person, Fernanda, but we just bookended a discussion with Cashflow yep. Management with Dun and Bradstreet and. Uh, um, we've got legalvision.com.au, guys coming from the big the big, guy, the big law firms who set up a, effectively a legal disruptor um, to look after small business. And I, I, I agree, Nick, the, the biggest and most important mistake that everybody makes is they don't get the legals sort of wrapped up. That's right. And if you sort of all sort of mull around and caucus an idea with your mates and your family, whatever it is, and all of a sudden it becomes a cracker, I can tell you right now, whatever you sat down and agreed will, will turn into something that's going to destroy everybody. And that's when it's usually too late. So, good job. Thank you, Fernando. Fernando. G'day, Mark. What are you doing here? I'm a, I'm a bit of a ring today, I think. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Look, I saw Belinda yesterday at the International... Belinda's Fernando's lovely wife. I saw her at the International Women's Day function that Yellowbrick Road held. Great. Look, to me, it was more a bit of a, a chill-out session to get the energy and the vibe. Yeah. Um, I think the business that we're involved in is so high, you know, high energy and it's intense. I should say, uh, Fernando has been with me for a million years, um, <laughs> but he's run uh, businesses um, that are part of the Yellow Brick Road Group and part of the Wizard Group um, going back, I don't know, what, what year? 99. 99, there you go, that's scary. Um, <laughs> and I think, where did you come from originally? Um, mate, uh, well... Before Wizard? Yeah, before Wizard, I was the... Um, Acquisitions manager for Colonial Group. Colonial, right? Okay, and yeah. then you then you went off to G for a while after. Yes, yeah, so I did the uh, Wizard. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I did the national distribution role for Wizard. Yeah, had a couple of Wizard branches yeah. out in Western Sydney. Yeah, uh, Mortgage Belt. Um, and then I think you know, with obviously the sale of, of Wizard, went over to GE for a little yeah, while. Went over and, to GE for a while, yeah, I remember that. 
And then you're back in the fold with uh, Yellow Brick Road. Yellow Brick Road, you know, so it's been six so, years. And right now you you do, you do have two roles at Yellow Brick Road, but one is independent, as an mm-hmm. independent licensee of Correct. the Yellow Brick Road brand in Tweed. Yep. Okay. And uh, and the other one is uh, you're a, 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 one of our sales trainers or a national Correct. trainers for um, new group. branches that open up in the yeah. Yellow Brick Road group. And we had 10 of them through yesterday and a really good group of Oh, you had 10. a training day, did you? Yeah. So 10 new people joined Yellow Brick Road yesterday, which was... Tell um, me about your journey. Mate, it's been... With Yellow Brick Road, I mean, let's, let's not go back to Wizard. No, no. Else owns that now, Commonwealth yeah, Bank. Um, CBA bought it. <laughs> That's right. Look, the, the journey, I've got to say, you know, day one, you know, going for that first office of Yellow Brick Road, I remember when you first kicked off and... And you were at Penrith. Your first office of Yellow Brick Road was Penrith. Was Penrith. Yeah, and, and you were actually one of our best performers and the guy who runs it now is one of our best performers. Correct. And, you know, it was tough. You know, people say, yes, we've got Mark as the brand, but, you know, we were out there flogging Yellow Brick Road and people would go to us, what are you talking about? And, and Adam, here's a good point, right? Yeah. You're talking about distribution. Yeah. They had someone like me who's $100 million have been invested in me by Wizard to build the Wizard brand, so people knew who I was. Here yeah. I am running the Yellow Brick Road brand, and he's saying it was tough Yeah. at the beginning. That, and that's, that's in 2009? Yeah, 2000, yeah, just on 2009. Yeah. And it was funny because we'd be out there pounding the pavement, knocking on doors and, and you know, speaking of real estates, you know, all those things that you've got to do and really, I mean, there's no substitute for walking up and down the main street because you've got to become that local identity wherever you are. So the hardest thing was, you know, getting that name and what do we do because we were getting phone calls that people actually thought we were bricklayers at one stage, you know, want us to go out in there and quote. So there was a, road, yeah. yeah, it was a misconception and I actually thought it was a G up from a couple of mates and I said, well, we only lay yellow bricks, so... Unless you want a yellow house, we, we can't do it for you. But a legitimate call, so it was a bit of a laugh. And um, but, but the one thing I, I found was you've got to be trusted in your community. And the biggest leverage that, that we got was off the back of sport. You know, the culture, you know, we spoke about, you know, would you sell your poles here versus Sweden? Australia is a mad sporting culture. You know, it's, it's whether it's league, AFL, you know, the football, um, netball, you look around on the weekends – and I look at it, that's your major mass consumer market. So you've got to be able to leverage that. So really today was really, really asking Mark a question, you know, because I know he's involved with sport and has been for a long time and commiserations over the weekend. Very unexpected result. Well, you won. Canterbury, the Bulldogs won. Yeah, we, we, we and won. And the Roosters happy. lost. Yeah, that's, what exactly. that's his point. He's trying to, but, mate, we, we had men playing boys. So you wait, you wait, <laughs> you wait, you wait. We'll be right. Yeah. So if I look at it, you know, sport, you know, when my dad was taking me to the football, you know, we used to be the old Newtown Jets. You know, it was really a part-time sport. Um, it was very unprofessional. You know, the guys had finished their game, go and, you know, sit there and have a smoke, Tommy Radonikus, and have a beer and go and get their jobs the next day. In the last 25 years, sport's become professional at all levels. You know, I go to some of the little kids' football games. They've got their own websites. You know, they, they've got newsletters. They've got social media. It's a business. And I know you're involved with sports administration and you have been for a while, what are things that we can learn off those sorts of businesses that we can implement in our own? Because we've got to have these points of differentiation. And I think we tend to stagnate our businesses and we all try to come up with new marketing concepts and they've probably all been done. But sports seems to grow every year. I mean, record television deals, dollars. So how do we do it? Like, I, I, th- I think one of, one of the, my observations of, of sport is, um, and I often say this to young boxers and um, I say to young footballers a lot, and I say to swimmers, so um, who are the sort of the three codes that I have some sort of interaction with? And I say to them, if you look at the best in the world in your sport, 
Um, and what I mean by the best in the world is not necessarily the one who's number one in the world, they can be number one in the world, but who's making the most money out of it? They are in the business of the sport as opposed to being a sports person. Um, so rugby league clubs like the Roosters used to be in the business of being a rugby league club and something that was just there to look after the community and present a rugby league game every weekend and to keep a fan base. But now the Roosters become, we are in the business of rugby league. It's a totally different business. And we treat it like a business. And everything we do is business-like. And sometimes we have to make really tough decisions. We have to fire coaches, we have to fire players, to change administration. And we are doing it exactly the same way as I would do it if I'm running Yellowbrook Road. Whereas before, we, it, before it used to be more hobby-like. And if you're a player, a good example of that is, um, say, Bo Ryan. Bo Ryan is not a footballer. He's in the business of football. Now he's retired as a footballer, but even during the period when he was still playing, he was on, on the footy show, he ran it through his manager, Wayne Beavis, like the business of football. You take Mayweather. Mayweather's last fight um, against Pacquiao, the difference between the two fighters is Mayweather's in the business of boxing and Pacquiao's a boxer. And Mayweather has never lost a fight. And Mayweather will go down as the uh, currently is the only fighter in the world has had the had the greatest number of fights without loss, and may get one more, um, may not, um, and has probably made more money and kept his money than any other fighter in history. The reason is because he's in the business of boxing. I know a young kid called Bilal Akaway. He's an Australian, just won. Uh, another junior title. Um, he's, he's, you know, well titled. He's probably ranked number 30. Um, his father was a great boxer here in Australia and they trained down somewhere in Annadale, um, a place called, I think it's called Hardcore Gym or something like that. But I've been watching below. He's only a young kid, um, big punch on him. I've been watching him. I follow him on Instagram um, because Bilal, actually, I can see developing himself to be in the business of boxing. Yeah. And, and I think he'll become very successful at what he's done. Whether he wins a world title is another matter, but he's going to become very successful as a boxer because he, he's, it's his attitude towards it. It's the way he runs it now, or maybe it's his dad running it. I don't know, but he keeps himself clean. He doesn't get in any trouble. Um, he trains. He puts up all the training programs that he, he does. He puts up lots of vision of himself training. He actually delivers. He wins his fights. He's, um, I, know, I think he's eight and zero. He hasn't lost a fight yet. Um, he's... A nice young man. He's uh, well representative of the community. I mean, he's got everything, all the ingredients, and he's just a young kid. So yeah. I'd say there's someone coaching me through this, and whether or not it's deliberate or not, I don't know. But he's in the business of boxing. Um, same as swimmers. Ian Thorpe was was the world's greatest swimmer, but he was in the business of swimming. So he turned that into a business, which why which is why you get some great sportsmen who make a dollar. And you may get some clubs never successful because they don't approach it the right way. Now, we're really lucky at the Roosters. We've got a great business board. Our board is made up of mostly businessmen. And, you know, and our chairman is Nick Politis, and he's a brilliant businessman. And everything we do is business-like, everything we do. And I know the NRL right now is trying to change the makeup of rugby league football boards um, to give them a better chance of survival because... What's going to happen is if in rugby league, for example, if your board is not a business board and you don't run the business, the, the, run the club like a business, and if you don't remember that you're in the business of football, ultimately in a big dollar industry like rugby league is today, you'll fail. Yeah. 
which is I would say I, I would I would put it out there that perhaps some of the clubs that aren't doing so well as football clubs, I don't mean in the competition, but in terms of financially, those who had to be, have to be rescued by the NRL, may be part of the reason is because there's not enough businessmen on their board or no, not enough business people looking at the way the thing should be run. Uh, you know, because, you know, rugby league clubs have been traditionally run by ex-players and footy heads, yeah. which is okay, it's cool, um, but that's just not going to cut it unless you have an attitudinal change to the way you're going to approach rugby league to get today because it's a big game and you can't compete. It's a different, you can, they can't compete with us in terms of survival. They might beat us on, on a game, but they can't comp- comp- compete with us in terms of survival because we're going to approach it a totally different way. Yeah. And um, we're going to be chasing the sponsors harder than they are. We're going to be looking after the sponsors harder than they are. We're going to be running better Facebook programs than they are. We're going to be running Roosters TV, which is what we run, better than they run any other communication with their supporters, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, South are a great example. I mean, I, as much as I'm, you know, sworn enemy of South, um, you know, in, in a, a technical sense because they're our neighbours um, and, you know, the rivalry, rivalry between us is ridiculous. I do respect what they do in terms of running the business. They run a very sharp, keen business. And Russell Crowe is very good at implementing those business-type principles, yeah. which is why Russell Crowe is probably so good at what he does. He runs the business of being a movie star. He's not just a movie star and handing it all over to a manager. He runs that business. And, uh, and I think that's how you've got to approach it, Fernando, today in sport. Sport's got to be approached from a business point of view. Yeah. Um, and it, great tennis stars. You'll see there's massive businesses sitting behind them. Now, Nick Fordham's not here today, but a, a lot of talent, sport or otherwise, um, use management, some like Fordham Group. Yeah. Um, uh, they use, uh, a lot of footballers use people like uh, uh, Wayne Beavis and, uh, you know, George Mimas, and there's a whole, there's a whole slew of them. Um, and... But over time, you've got to actually take you, the sports person, the sports star, you must take a greater role in that. You must actually become the person who's running that business. Something like Bo Ryan. Bo Ryan is, we should get Bo Ryan in here. He's a really funny character. He's an interesting guy. But he's a good businessman. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's what I found, you know, with my first business, you know, back, you know, 15 years ago. I was always focused on that product so much. You were focusing yourself on being a mortgage broker. Pretty instead much, of, yeah, exactly. Of being in the business of, of yeah, mortgages. Exactly. So, you know, and, and I was focusing, you know, when's that next deal coming through? When's that next deal coming through? And I was sort of, you know, panicking, stress, cash flow. You know, do I have to, you know, enough capital here to survive for the next couple of years? Because things aren't that crash hot. And it wasn't until I got that sort of moment that I thought, hold on, I seem to be too close to this business, being a mortgage broker rather than being a business person, which is what I've joined. And that's an interesting point for all small business owners who are listening. You, too many small business owners go into small business with a great idea and a great product and a great yeah. and or a great service, but they forget to they forget that they're in they are in business they are in small business and it's a totally different mindset. There, you know, there are <laughs> there are plenty plenty of people come out of the banking industry, for example, brilliant people understand banking backwards, understand mortgages, understand every part of banking. Great employees, they go and they want to go into business like Yellow Road and run a license for us, but they don't do very well because they don't know how to run a small business. And, for example, they don't know all the legal stuff. They don't know the structures. They don't sit down and work about, out about cash flows. They don't understand distribution. They don't understand marketing. They don't understand how to recruit people. They don't know how to re- understand how to retain people. They don't understand how to be nice to their staff. They don't know how to walk the pavements and knock on every real estate agent's door and say, or, in your case, every liquor store, would you please sell my, uh, my gift card on, yeah. uh, to sell over your wine? 
They don't know how to wear out the shoe leather. They just think it's going to happen. They sit there and wait everyone to come to them. It doesn't fucking work that way. So, Fernando, thanks for coming in, mate. You're a champion. I'm a great, I'm one of, I'm one of, Amanda, I am a Fernando Lemos fan. (laughs) And I have been for a long, long time. Thanks, mate. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Okay, that's a wind up. We're done. Done. See you guys next week. And I think it was brilliant. Thanks very much for everybody making a big effort. And thanks for coming to talk to us. Thanks, Thanks, mate. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Boris and find out more at markboris.com.au. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.